No, I am your father. Good morning, Pascal. Good morning, Ramon. And welcome. This is Strictly Untyped, the second and last episode of 2015. Today we have a, a end of the year special program. Um, we're gonna review 2015 and talk about a few few things that we hope for 2016. But before, I think we have a little bit of follow-up. Yeah, something I wanted to mention is um, about the ad status request in the Play Store I mentioned last time, where Google wants people to point out whether or not they use ads in their apps. Um, this is actually not a new thing, and you said that, that uh, you added your status quite a while ago. And they already display that, but only in the family version of the Play Store. I've never used that, so I have no idea how this looks. And how do you access that? family version? I have no idea. I think if you have a family account and you um, mark some of your members as children, then they only see like the restricted version of the Play Store. Oh, and for those, okay. you have to apply for your apps. So those are actually reviewed before they are um, admitted. And there you have to also um, explicitly point out if you have ads in there. So if you've applied for that, you will have already marked your apps as being ad-supported. And now in 2016, they will display that ad status on all the apps. For so everyone, for the regular exactly, yeah. Google Play Store. Okay. Yeah, okay. and then the second piece of follow-up was regarding the show notes. So at the moment, they don't look particularly great. And this is um, because of a discovery you made that SoundCloud, which we use to publish the episodes, doesn't allow embedding HTML in the RSS feeds. Um, for obvious reasons. I mean, spammers could use that. Um, but it's a bit unfortunate for us because we obviously want to link to a bunch of stuff from the show notes. So I wrote a small reverse proxy that reads in Markdown, which we can obviously publish just fine um, through that interface and renders that as HTML. I haven't deployed it yet. You, you know, there's writing software, so fun and games. But when it comes down to putting it in production, ugh, it's, it's a nightmare. I know. So yeah, I need to figure this out, maybe do some container um, magic and then soon you should see the show notes with actual clickable links yeah. thanks a lot for taking care of that by the way and soundcloud if you are listening to us that we're sure you are not cool not cool uh <laughs> yeah especially that forum that, that that support thread that i found i don't know they were not especially helpful saying I don't know. They left the topic hanging for a really long time, saying, "Yeah, we're looking into it. We're looking into it," and then one day they just said, "No, we're not going to do it." It's it's quite interesting if you contrast this to something Apple would do. They would never respond to you straight away and say, "Hey, yeah, this is a great idea. We are totally going to do this," and then come back to you a year later saying, "Ah, uh, yeah, well, actually, uh, no." They would just either not say anything at all or get to you when it's done. I don't think one is clearly superior to the other. It's just interesting to see how different companies handle customer support and developer requests so completely differently. Yeah. Okay, so that's all about follow-up. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you something. Are you a Star Wars fan? I am a Star Wars fan, yeah. Um, Are you going to watch the, the new movie? I definitely will. Do you have yeah. 
have I, you I have bought some tickets yeah unfortunately quite late I think on the 23rd so I will probably just avoid social media f- starting today <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a good idea yeah it's very interesting last night um I went to bed really late because I finished watching the episode one which by the way I really enjoyed you can hate me everyone uh and someone uh, well, a really good friend of us, Esteban, he sent me a link to this Jar Jar Binks theory that's been doing the rounds on Reddit and some other social media platforms. Have you heard about it? No, I have not. Do you know who Jar Jar Binks is? Yeah, do I you do. remember that goofy character? Yeah. So this theory talks about how he's actually uh, um, a Sith, a really powerful Sith, and how he applies the the force in really strange manners. I found myself watching videos of this really ancient martial art called the Drunken Fist. Uh, <laughs> you should you should really watch it. Like I think if you, I don't remember the 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 actual name, but it it, tran- it translates as a Drunken Fist, and you see there's people dressed as you know martial artists. And then when the combat begins, they start like walking around like if they were drunk and then they they have really unpredicted moves and they, they I don't know, it, it's really interesting. I saw this combat between karate karate guys and drunken fist guys. The karate guys really kick their asses. And anyway, I really recommend reading this theory. Uh, I will I will add it to the show notes and I, r- I had a really good time. Sounds amazing. I, I read another article. I don't remember where it was, but some publication where I didn't expect it to show up, something like Wall Street Journal or Forbes about um, the empire and being in favor of that and the destruction of, um, <laughs> what's the name of the planet again? Sorry, something with A. What planet? The one they destroy in the fourth movie? I don't remember the name, yeah, but it's the one well, that I should really remember in the episode name. four, the one that Death Star destroys. The only one that it actually destroys, I think. Yeah. Um, by the way, I've been watching, uh, last weekend I watched uh, episode four, five and six. For I hadn't watched them for a really long time. Well and done, now, good preparation. Yeah. I should do the same. I need to do, now I've got episode two and three that are going to be a delight after... After this theory, watch it. They're going to be a completely new experience after knowing that Jar Jar is that evil being that is actually manipulative and is, you know, the one pulling the strings. Yeah, but you left me no time to actually watch those movies because you forced me to watch The Leftover. So I always come into the office now every morning being super depressed from last night's episode and don't have even time to watch Star Wars. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome, Pascal. Okay, uh, <coughs> let's move on. Um, so we have a debate about 2015 versus 2016. That um, episode naming idea actually um, came from Tom Ashworth, who realized that the first topic we had to handle was Android versus iOS. So we're going to stick with that for a moment. And it reminds me of the um, series Chuck. Have you seen that one? Every Chuck? No. Oh, I love that one. Every episode that was titled Chuck versus, or Chuck versus the helicopter, okay. Chuck versus something else. Is it worth watching? Oh, yeah, d- absolutely. Yeah. If you're into strong characters and great character development, uh, I can definitely recommend it. Okay. I think it's on Netflix as well. Cool. Okay. Um, so now into the actual topic. So the idea here was that um, every one of us chooses three highlights of the year that they want to talk about 
than one thing they don't want to see next year and one thing they really hope for to see next year. Yep, that's that's the idea. So we're gonna t- pick our top three. I think we're gonna talk start from top one, or shall we start top th- top three, top two, top one? Oh God, I have no idea. I don't even have them in order for me. So I don't okay. Know. All right. So we've talked a lot about TV and um, not really tech related stuff. So I'm going to pick something really in depth. And um, that is the rise of functional programming. I've noticed that 2015 was a really great re- year for functional programming. We've seen a lot of talks and um, not to be too negative here, but I kind of hope at the same time that 2016 will also be the year where we don't have to um, preface every conference talk with the benefits of functional programming and why purity is so great and all of this. So I've, I've probably watched 100 plus talks this year um, starting off like this. I've kind of had enough. So I think, Do you everyone think reactive programming is going to be the functional programming of 2016? So if you are in the Android world, this is already kind of the case. So every conference has to have a talk about RxJava. This is like mandated. Um, it happens every single time, and every time it's uh, 15 minutes intro, then 10 minutes rehashing the established patterns, and then five minutes of actual interesting stuff that you can do with it. Is Reactive um, Rx Java the de facto uh, reactive programming framework for for Android, similar to Reactive Cocoa for iOS? Probably, yeah. You okay. definitely see it everywhere at the moment. We Rx do Java ha- came from Microsoft, isn't it? I don't actually know if the Java part comes from Microsoft, but the reactive extensions, um, I don't know what the right term for this is. I'm just going to call it framework and have people hate me for this. Um, This idea came from Microsoft and Eric Meyer and other people and has been ported since then. So it started in uh, C Sharp and um, was an extension to what they had with Link already. And yeah, so that was ported to a lot of different languages, including Java, JavaScript, but pretty much everything that is out there. So I'm pretty sure there's a direct port to Objective-C as well, but I'm not entirely sure how that looks like. I haven't seen it. We shall find out. Yeah, So, but what I've noticed there is that this rise of functional programming, to me, was particularly visible in the web community, which is always one of the best places to see new technologies rise, because there isn't particularly much framework stuff dragging you down. So on JavaScript... uh, Also, there's a brand new framework released every single day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the reason why this happens every day is that there just is isn't really much you have to build on top of every time you try to build something new. On Android, you have this activity thing that we talked about, a, a really, really hard-coded life cycle that you have to adhere, and pretty much the same is true on iOS. You have Cocoa there, and trying to fight that is, is quite difficult. On And on the web, you have some application entry point, and that's pretty much all. So the... I must say that on iOS is not as strict as on Android. Yeah, I noticed a lot of people have actually replaced the entire view stack, something I don't think has happened on Android yet, at least not in in Java, unless you go all in and replace it with HTML, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so but on the web in particular, I, I, I loved seeing that Elm has gotten a lot of traction. So that is a pure functional programming language and most of the time, if you notice something like PureScript, one of my favorite new languages on the web, wasn't started in 2015, but it has also gained quite a lot of traction. But 
Um, so to contrast this, PureScript, from what I have seen, has gained most traction from people coming from Haskell or other pure functional languages that wanted to program something like this in JavaScript or on the web, but yeah, don't want to touch JavaScript at all. And Elm has attracted more people from JavaScript itself from what I've seen. And at least the idea of the Elm architecture has seen quite a lot of adoption in different frameworks, even outside of Elm itself. So that is really interesting to me to see, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what 2016 holds up for them. So this is going to sound like a silly question, and I'm happy to be the clown in this conversation. Uh, but what's going to happen with now that functional programming, functional programming is becoming mainstream, do you think functional programming hipsters are going to move on to the next thing? Are they going to hate it, like start saying I was there first and then look for something new? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's, that's that's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, I think you have to look at the incentives that are there, why people actually pick up programming, uh, functional programming in the first place. And when you listen to those 10 minutes that I mentioned before of every talk, pretty much everyone mentions reducing the number of bugs you have in your applications. And that's definitely a noble goal. A goal. And functional programming is one way to get there. But at least for me personally, this is not the biggest concern. We all write bugs. We would like to write fewer bugs. But it's not really the thing that drags us down. At least at Twitter, we have QA. We have people looking into this. We have a lot of metrics. And I can't really think of the last time we wrote a bug that hurt us a lot. We can fix them incrementally. We, we QA or users come back with a list of bugs and we can work through them one by one and make the application slightly better. But the other part where functional programming really shines is reducing technical debt and increasing your overall velocity that you have while working on a project and keeping it maintainable. Um, in particular, by allowing local reasoning so that you look at a particular piece of code and you can directly, without looking at all the context that you need to have in an imperative program, what it actually does. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that. For me, you know, all of us have our mental models of what things are. And one of the things I love most about functional programming is that it seems to, and I'm sure you're going to think, oh, Ramon, you, your idea is so wrong. But for me, functional programming kind of automates many things like for example a map or a filter or things like that i know you look at them as um monads or things like that and i know that's not the correct terminology there but you look at it from the functional like pure functional point of view but for me that I'm, I'm a bit more practical i just see those as an automation mechanism as i see this is something that you do a lot and this single function just automates like traversing an array and doing something with it or finding something in an array and getting the result. Um, that kind of, I, I know this is a very simplistic vision, but I think from that automation comes some simplification and therefore fewer bugs. Does that make any sense? Yeah, so what I think of when you describe this is just abstraction, that you find common yeah. patterns. Yeah, completely. That you use all the time and you abstract them away. So even something as simple for an imperative programmer like a for loop uh, has a lot of potential. It's a more granular abstraction. You usually think of abstraction as in abstract this 
module into a different class or things like that. This is more low level, like within a function, just extract this for loop or this search or this um, filter thing into a, what do you call a higher level, higher order? Higher order function? Higher order, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But even something as simple as a for loop, there are so many things that can go wrong, so many subtleties. Yep. And even in yep. code review, they sometimes slip through. You initialize some variable. I'm, I'm, I, I really mean the, the for loop with the two semicolons in the middle. You have to initialize a variable. You have to increment it. Then you have to pick that element from the collection that you have. And sometimes you mix those uh, indices up. They're just integers, so they aren't particularly well typed. And you extract an element there. If you confuse an i with an outer j or the other way around, uh, then all of a sudden you have a really subtle bug, get a crash uh, at runtime, and you have no idea why. And yep. this, this can't happen if you just um, yeah, have a map or fold over a data structure. Yeah, it reduces the complexity of reviewing code because you see map and you understand what map does and you trust that that map is going to do what it's supposed to do. And yeah, it, and it brings simplification, which is... There's only one concern that I have, and that is that um, at some point next year, we're going to see the first articles on Medium telling you why FP is stupid. You see the first people saying, yeah, this is all rubbish. It didn't work. Here, look at this app. We FP'd all the way. And we still we still failed. And the reason why I think this is going to happen is that people don't actually embrace FP to the fullest because there you really have to go all in. You have to maintain purity throughout your entire program. You can't make any exceptions in your pure code for it to remain pure. And sorry for that um, exception pun in there. I didn't get it, by the way. Oh, that, that's OK. <laughs> Don't worry. Um, so as soon as you violate purity in any of your functions, you lose the ability to locally reason about your program. And as soon as that happens, you're actually not programming functionally anymore. You only sprinkle in some, some functional yeah. programming in, into your otherwise imperative code. Yeah. So that, that's where I was going with my question about the hipster, the functional program, FP hipsters, are those going to start writing those articles? Because at the moment, you don't see those articles, right? Anyone saying anything bad about functional programming is like, at the moment, is wi widely accepted to be positive and and that's it. So Almost. There's one, one particularly interesting discussion I had at the Android at Scale meetup, which I co-organize here in London. And it was quite interesting because I um, I was moderating a session on functional programming on Android, and I did this twice. And the first group was completely in favor of doing everything, was super pro IX Java. And the second group was the exact opposite. They were like, yeah, I'm not convinced, or no, this is rubbish, I don't want to do this. And they actually raised some arguments I expected to hear. But RX Java is not, func I mean, it, that is uh, reactive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I actually wanted to have a discussion about functional programming, but okay. in both times it kind of happened to be a um, discussion about IX Java. Um, I, I need to find a way but to do it next time without the IX. I think that those are very different debates because even though I see many of the benefits of uh, reactive programming, I think that those are more debatable. As, you know, uh, yes, absolutely. But we will talk about that at yeah, some other the, point. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of IX, to be honest. It's just um, the most accepted... Uh, thing out there and the best documented one. Um, but anyway, the argument that came up and that is hard to argue with is that the mobile VMs that we have on, on Android and, well, not a VM, but the uh, runtime on iOS aren't particularly well suited for the kind of garbage 
generated by those frameworks. And I don't mean in terms of code, but in terms of the actual um, memory allocation patterns. You generate a lot of small objects, sometimes over longer periods of time, which might cause um, more garbage collection cycles. And that doesn't matter all that much if you run on a server on the back end somewhere. But for mobile applications, the situation is quite different. Okay, shall we move on to my top one? You want to talk? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Pick your first. Actually, it's going to be very related to what we just talked about. But as we said, uh, when we decided to talk about uh, these uh, highlights of 2015, at a personal level, um, I'm going to pick Swift and Swift 2 in particular because Swift actually came out in came out in 2014. It's not that I didn't like Swift 1, which I loved, but in particular this year it seems to be the year of Swift. Uh, everyone seems to be praising it. I think with Swift 2, Swift 2 they fixed many of the concerns uh, that were raised with the first version, even though I know you're not a big fan of the uh, error handling model, which I enjoy because it kind of forces you to actually handle errors in a more explicit way. For you guys familiar with Objective-C, it was too easy just to pass an NS error. And if the function didn't return what you expected, it was very easy to ignore it. Here with explicit syntax with do, try, catch, at least if you don't handle the errors, at least it looks, the block of code looks looks ugly. Yeah, so my complaint there was that you still get this separate control flow um, through the exception model, which is unnecessary if you can express it uh, through type signatures, which was the way that Swift 1 chose. But I do see why this is necessary, and this is clearly for backwards compatibility with Objective-C and the yeah. existing APIs. So I just would have wished that they said, okay, fuck it. We're just not going to cater for those old APIs. In the future, there will be new APIs, which work better with Swift. And until then, um, you will have to work around those. But that is fine. Like we, there's nothing in the in the language that prevents you from returning, like um, yeah, yeah, the of, object. Of course, and we're all doing it. Like in some of the things I'm writing now, you can always return a result that can contain a suc success and the object and an error. But I think this is a flawed argument. You can always say, "Yeah, but you don't have to use it." And you hear this a lot when when you talk to people in but JavaScript and no, that, the class not, syntax. And, and I all don't this. agree with that. Like one of the big benefits of Swift is that it works with all the all the old Objective-C libraries. The adoption of Swift would, would be much lower if that wasn't the case. And this is making a premise better. If your thing returns an error or throws or whatever, you need to handle it. And that's the way I like to say it. I agree with you that it would be nicer that if they broke away with all the error object stuff and throwing exceptions and stuff like that. But for the premise, I think it's a very good uh, compromise, and I'm ha I'm happy. Okay, there's one question I have for you. So, um, sorry, I'm, you're going to hate me for this, but I'm going to violate your podcasting rule again. So this morning, I listened to half of the podcast on uh, the talk show with John Gruber and Craig. What's his last name? The Federici. I'm not going to try to pronounce Federighi. this, but so Federighi. he's um, the senior VP of engineering at Apple, and then charge of Swift. And so I got the feeling from the conversation there that uh, Swift is influenced quite a lot by senior people within Apple that have some concerns 
with the language and what they are no longer able to express there. And it seems to me that the first version was still kind of a secret project within Apple. So it was mainly influenced by what Chris Lattner and his gang there had in mind. And now with Swift 2, you see all of those things creep back in that were part of Objective-C, but not of Swift 1, like the dynamicism, the error handling and other things. And it seems to me like there were just people tapping Chris on, on the on the shoulder and say, hey, what about the dynamicism there? So can we get this back, please? And they they sit higher in his chain and he reports to them in some in some form or someone else. So he has to listen to them. So this is what I feel if you look at uh, Rust's language design, where it happened completely in the open from from the beginning. And you had people in charge there making those decisions or something like Haskell, which is just academically driven. Um, then you have a completely different dynamic on how the language evolves than in a corporate setting like Apple. So what was the question? <laughs> oh, God damn it! I did the um, politician thing there, didn't I? Uh, yeah, so do you have the feeling that there's still a cohesive vision for Swift's language design and not just it being a kitchen sink um, in the way that I feel about Scala? Um, I must say I agree with with what you said. I got the feeling. Uh, I listened to the interview. Um, by the way, you could you could have bypassed my my rule by saying I listened to the interview of Craig Verigi uh, this morning, and everyone would have known that without mentioning podcast. Um, so I got that feeling as well, like when he talks about the dynamicism. Is that how you say it? Dynam Dynam dynamicism. Yeah. When he talks about that, uh, I got that feeling too. But I don't know. I think I'm quite confident um, in the future now that it's open source. Um, even though those those people may have some influence, I think the community will will make Swift be what all of us want to be. And I think that they are definitely on the right path. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just concerned about committees and language design. I can't really think of a good example of language that came out of a committee that worked well. So as an opposite there, if I look at Elm and the latest release um, uh, at this time, that is 0.16, they removed features there. They looked at what people use, what they misuse in particular, and they just removed it. So I, I can't really think of any other language that had a major release. And I know it's 0.16, but still it was considered a quite major release that removed features. So they broke backwards compatibility with a bunch of um, existing apps, but they made the, the language leaner, easier to understand, and easier to reason about just for that particular reason. And if you look at something like Swift, it's designed so that they can put it up on a big keynote and say, here are 500 new features in Swift 2 that are going to make your lives easier. I don't agree with that last point he made, but I don't know. We'll, I, I guess we'll see how this evolves. As a counterpoint to what I said before, they actually agree to remove the plus plus and minus minus or the dec uh, decrement and increment operators. Really? So that is something they are going to remove from the language. And I like the approach there in that they will provide um, automatic or semi-automatic migration for existing code. Yep, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so anyway, just to wrap this up, uh, for me, this I picked Swift as one of my highlights of 2015 because I'm finally able to do my job 
using using a language that I would enjoy that I can apply functional programming principles uh, where functions functions are first class citizens. Uh, I don't know. There are so many nice features. Things like defer blocks in in functions, uh, guard blocks at the beginning of functions as well. To especially to parse JSON, it is so nice. Seriously, I think that guard statement at the beginning simplifies things so much. And um, optionals, like I fell in love with them so quickly. Like now, when I go back to Objective C, it's like, damn it, I I, I really need optionals here. I love to hear this, Ramon, because that means you're like halfway there to the way to Monad Enlightenment. I'm looking forward for you to to enlighten me during this year. And just finally, uh, I'm also really just to to finish this point. I'm really glad that they also added some extra capabilities or at least keywords to Objective-C just to make the API compatibility much more easy, like generics, even though it doesn't do much for the compiler, but you know when it translates into Swift, it's very nice. Things like null, non-null, and generics, it helps a lot and makes the APIs in Swift so much nicer. So I think this is going to be about programming language So uh, for this top three highlights, I think. I think that's it, yeah. You want to move on to your top two? Yeah, sure. Um, let's not call it top two. Let's call it uh, another Second. item out of my top three, and that is diversity in tech. And diversity itself is definitely nothing to be proud of um, in, in this year. But the awareness that it has gotten has significantly increased compared to the years before. And that's something I'm, I'm really happy about. So you, you see that a lot of blog posts have, have been written not only by people from those groups, but also from other groups. A lot of CEOs have, have pitched in their big companies, have published their data about diversity internally and have made it one of their top priorities for, for the coming years to imp improve on this. And this is absolutely fantastic to see. I have to say that I'm really, I'm really happy to work with you because you are super involved in working towards fixing diversity. Um, you host many coding events just to help people and to get involved in, the, in, in programming and engineering in general. You're, you, you're really good in, in that respect. I would like to get more involved in that, in that respect in 2016. And I will, I will be willing to help as much as I can. Uh, and yeah, I'm also really glad that this is becoming something that people talk about constantly and I really hope it's not a fad and in a few years time we we stop talking about it because it's fixed. Yeah this is probably going to take a while but um, there are so many things everyone can do uh, so one thing I, I have to mention working here is you can definitely just start by diversifying your Twitter feed this is pretty much how I got started yeah. just follow a bunch of people with different perspectives and listen to them even if it's just a few and you have that, that little item there in your timeline somewhere flying by every now and then, at, at some point you will realize a pattern there and see what is actually wrong about this. Yeah, and I mean, uh, let's be honest, the two of us don't really contribute uh, to diversity in the podcasting space with, with being two white blokes on the air again, but I think we can at least Half help guess. a little by, yeah. by yeah, selecting the right guests in the future. Yeah. And like we've said before, we have access to really great engineers around here, well, engineers and 
non-engineers. So we'll try to contribute towards this by being diverse in, in our guests. All right. Do you want to tell us the next of your picks? Okay. So my top two uh, of 2015 was the Raspberry Pi 2. Um, this is not very, it's not strictly programming related, but similar to what I said about Swift, Swift 2. It's not that I didn't love the first Raspberry because I loved it, but the Raspberry Pi 2, thanks to, you know, it's got plenty powerful, um, it's super affordable. And I think... Quick question here for noobs like me. The Raspberry Pi 2 is not the Pi Zero that was released just a couple of weeks ago. Oh, right? no. Uh, yeah, thanks for pointing that out. So the Raspberry Pi 2, I think it was released in June this year. The original Raspberry Pi, which came into flavors, which was the Model A and the Model B, the difference was Model A had 256 megs of RAM and it didn't have an Ethernet port. The Raspberry Pi B had 512 megs of RAM and an Ethernet port. Then there was a revision called the Raspberry Pi B Plus and A Plus, which had four USB ports instead of two. And I don't know. I think it had better power management as well. And that came out last year. And in June this year, they released the Raspberry Pi 2, which uh, is quad core. Uh, it's got one gig of RAM. Um, it has micro micro SD reader instead of the full blown SD reader, and probably many other improvements that um, I'm not uh, mentioning here. So, um, as I said, for me it was great because for two reasons, it made me love Linux again. Um, I use my Raspberry Pi to one of my Raspberry Pis to as my media center and also my home server. I share files. I got uh, a torrent client running. I SSH into it when I need to, you know, access any of my files. So it's really great, and also it allowed it allowed me to complete one of my uh, DIY projects that I had been planning for ages, which was to build my own arcade cabinet. I still I haven't seen it live, but I've seen the photos, and it looks amazing. You should definitely put the link to the tweet in the show notes. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, so yeah, I, I I bought some wood and some components, and I I built an arcade machine from from scratch. I use this um, distribution for Raspberry Pi called uh, RetroPi. I will add li um, a link to the show notes as well. Um, uh, yeah, uh, as I said, it's a really affordable computer uh, that where you can run Linux. I think Microsoft tried to get on the on the Raspberry Pi to excitement. Uh, wave by announcing that Windows 10 would run on on it uh, at the time. I'm not quite sure if many people are actually running Windows 10 on it, but I think Linux is the OS for for the Raspberry Pi, and there are so many really really amazing distributions. The one I use for my media center is called OSMC, uh, developed by this really nice chap called Sam Nazarko. Um, I recommend you follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's amazing. Uh, so yeah, that's that's those are the reasons why I picked Raspberry Pi two as my top two. I, I really I couldn't recommend it enough uh, for everyone. I think you can get one for like thirty pounds or thirty five dollars these days. Like you mentioned, the Raspberry Pi Zero came out recently. I think it's a really great engineering feature. 
but I don't know, it's a bit underpowered for, for many things you, you may want to do. Yeah, we went on a really foolish trip here when we heard that it was released in the Soho area here and wanted to find a magazine that shipped or came with it for, well, for free, but for five quid. Yeah. And <laughs> walked around it for half an hour trying to find a magazine shop that actually had that mag- uh, that thing unsuccessfully, um, he could have thought. Yeah, it's called the Magpie. Yeah, Magpie. So that's about the Raspberry Pi. Shall we move on to the last items? Sure. So for my third pick, I actually stole the idea from you and picked a video game because I um, peeked at the notes. Uh, And my game is The Witcher 3. This is the first game I've played in ages and actually played all the way through. Uh, I bought a PS4 for this because I needed to do something else after work than doing more programming. And I loved it so much. It's a fantastic game. The story is wonderfully told. The characters are amazing. The only thing that is a bit annoying, because that was the first game I played on the PS4, is the dreadful frame rate, which is locked to 30 FPS, but doesn't even hold up to that most of the time. Did they fix it with patches? It got better, yes. It it definitely got better, but still, I would... it, it feels weird to me playing a game that is not 60 FPS, and I know you could get this if you played it on a PC, but I explicitly didn't want to have a PC that I had to tune and install up updates to and all of this. It's The PS4 is a really nice package. You plug it into your TV and it just works most of the time, except for those frame rate issues. But also the developer is absolutely amazing. It's this, I think, Polish developer, um, development shop called CD Projekt Red and they've continued to publish uh, patches, content patches, free DLC for many months. Uh, the first extension came out just a couple months ago uh, and I've played that one as well. It was fantastic. Uh, I think it was five or ten quid, so not even that much. And I'm really looking forward to the next extension that is supposed to be released, I think, in early 2016. Does The Witcher 3 have any online capabilities no there's absolutely nothing online and i found this quite refreshing because there was this wisdom um, a couple years ago that single players dying there's no way a game could be successful at all without a a strong multiplayer component and this one was incredibly successful it's an indie publisher and there is absolutely nothing you can do online what about difficulty is the level does the level adjust to your skill level or there are um let me think I, I think three or even four difficulty options you can switch between and they change quite a few things within the game so how much damage your opponents do to you which is kind of obvious but also how you regenerate health and i think this is the the biggest one so if you're on the two hardest difficulty modes you won't regenerate health health by meditating which is something you can do pretty much all the time you just kind of lay down for a bit and then um, your health is refreshed and your potions are refreshed and if you on those modes you can only regenerate health by eating food i haven't played it yet but i I think i may play it how many hours did you spend on it unfortunately i don't know um everyone's bragging about how many hours they spent on it isn't there a place where you can check it um so (coughs) there there is a place in the menu but i think i made the mistake of um leaving the console run overnight once Okay. Uh, so while the game was kind of suspended and the timer there keep ticking up, so it's definitely wrong by at least uh, seven or eight hours or even more. Yeah, that's a shame. 
my topic like you yeah, I've already spoiled this a bit so what is your game <laughs> it's fine so unlike you I'm a, I play video games regularly and I've picked Bloodborne by From Software because it was super refreshing it was so different if you have been playing video games um, in the last few years there's been this trend I'm not talking about multiplayer games I'm talking about single player games uh, mostly um, or at least the single player campaign um, I noticed this trend where most of the games were on rails if I mean that most of them are the same like you start you get this tutorial phase where everything is there's no risk of dying or or losing because they you know they stop the game at the right moment to tell you what key what button you need to press and um and then at every stage of the game when there's a new mechanic introduced they will stop uh or present it in a very easy and accessible manner and to be fair i was getting tired i, I was getting bored of that you know there was no challenge um the games were just mostly about the story and to be fair, I love a good story in a video game, but I play I play mostly for the challenge because otherwise I would just, you know, watch a movie or or watch a TV show. So the right combination of a great story and a challenge was what I was looking for. And I think the the main brain behind uh, From Software is uh, Miyazaki. He's amazing. Uh, that guy is a genius. Uh, those are the, for for those of you that don't know, these are the same. Same guys that do uh, Dark Souls uh, 1 and 2 and Dark Souls 3 that is coming in March next year. Um, these games are just madness, especially Bloodborne. The visuals are amazing. Uh, you get this kind of uh, gothic uh, visuals that in this city called Yarnum. Uh, I don't know, they're, they're amazing. And, and the thing I love, uh, love the most about this game was how crazy difficult as what it was it takes you to the extreme of wanting to abandon it <laughs> it takes it it takes you there so many times but then when you're about to quit you finally manage to beat this crazy boss that's taking you like hours and hours to beat probably a good choice for me then to not start with that game as my first console game ever or, yeah. well not ever but uh, uh on like a next gen console whatever that means yeah, I wouldn't say I'm a particularly skillful player, but I don't know. I know what the buttons are and things like that. And when I like a game, like I'm a very dedicated player. But seriously, beating the bosses was so rewarding. And then trying to follow the story, um, this guy, Mijisaki, uh, he tells... I think he describes the, the way he tells stories by... Apparently, he, I think he's Japanese, and he says that he tells the stories the way he used to feel about books he used to read in English. So he his English wasn't particularly good, and when he would read them, he would only un understand understand some pieces, and his brain would fill the gaps with this really amazing story. And he does the same with his games. He gives you very small snippets of the story that you have to complete on your own and it has many touches of Lovecraft which I really like uh, and the world feels very much like that so anyway I would really recommend people getting this game for Christmas and 
it. it really sounds like a very Christmassy game. Uh, yeah, like Nightmare Before Christmas game. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I just wanted to point out that um, I also really enjoy that games now give you more freedom again. There was this time, especially with the Metal of Honor and Call of Duty yeah. series, where Completely everything rails. felt yeah. like on rails. And Yahtzee, kind of famous uh, game reviewer, gave those uh, the nice term, Spunk Gaga Wee Wee. Um, I, I just wanted to bring this in here. I don't uh, know I'll, I'll put it. I put a link to that in, uh, into the show notes. Okay. Okay. Cool. Okay. So I think we've we're done with our top three highlights of 2015. I think in general it's been a a really good year. So I think we're now going to move into the future and talk yeah. about yeah. Let's talk about the things from 2015 we hope not to see next year. So yeah. and for me this is the battery angst. I really hate this feeling when you go out and you have to leave a building or the place where you are able to recharge your devices. And the first action that you take is check for your battery level if you can possibly at this point actually go out without dying or rather your phone's battery dying. So I'm I'm checking right now. My phone now um, at close to the middle of the day is at 17% battery and has 50 minutes left. (laughs) <laughs> I've actually been in airplane mode for the entire t- day, so I can make it this far. And I've recharged it a bit at around 10 o'clock. Um, so what time did you unplug it? 7 o'clock? Around I've seven unplugged o'clock? it at around half 6, um, 6.30. Oh, you get up early, Pascal. I do get up early, but still, I would kind of expect my phone to make it at least until the afternoon. So yeah, I am on not the newest device. I'm on a Nexus 5, but it's it's a general trend that we keep adding battery power devices to our lives that uh, don't even make it through an entire day or barely. And I really wish that at some point in the future, we look back on this and shake our heads. How could we even live with that? Having to plug in all our devices every night. So right now I have to charge my phone, my tablet, my watch, my headphones, and probably a bunch of other things that I don't think about, some of them a bit more irregularly. Oh yeah, I have a second watch that I uh, use for sleep tracking. I also make have to make sure that this is plugged in in the morning so I can track it overnight again. And yeah, we've seen now with Apple and the, um, the battery pack of Notre Dame that the companies at least admit that this is a problem. It doesn't really look like they want to address it by increasing the batteries or lowering the power consumption, but but rather strapping something onto an existing device to make our lives slightly less miserable. And we see news about new battery technologies popping up every other week, and I really hope that one of them will actually make it to the consumers next year, maybe the year after, that will significantly improve uh, yeah, yeah. the story. If I can add to your point, I would like to not see a thinner iPhone. Uh, I, I don't think really at this point we don't need thinner thinner devices. So any improvements in battery technologies or consumption, um, OS tweaks to improve the the battery life, let's just go on with the kind of uh, thinness we have and get more battery life out of them. So. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, did he? Did he? I was quite hopeful when I saw that. I think this year uh, the first hydrogen cell fuel external batteries were released. Uh, I think some of them are available on the 
Apple Store. Um, but those are really good. The, the only problem is that you need to buy cartridges that uh, give you uh, power for up to a week to recharge your, your phone up to a week. Have you seen those? I have not, but um, <clears throat> the efficiency of those devices is still absolutely dreadful, and there's very little hope that this is going to increase. So I, I think this is not the solution. It might be a stopgap, but yeah, I know. let's see. Yeah, let's But see. I, I totally agree with your point about not wanting slimmer iPhones. And even though I'm not someone who's going to buy an iPhone, presumably, next year, we we all that. know that <laughs> we all know that Apple is leading the industry. And just imagine that next WWDC, uh, Apple went onto the stage or whatever event they do in between and announced that they have an all-week iPhone. What would happen at Samsung and HTC and uh, the Nexus headquarters? They would follow. They would absolutely follow. This would be the main main concern for them for the next year. But it would be the other way around, the same. Like if Samsung went and released like an all-week all battery live phone, Apple would do it the same way they did with um, with the larger screens. So I think it's good that people are, there's some competition in that space. For sure, yeah. Okay, so finally, the thing I don't want to see in 2016 that has been happening for the last few years is the really poor state of their Mac App Store. It's such a shame. Uh, I really wanted to love it. And Apple doesn't seem seem to care. Actually, I'm pretty sure that uh, we're gonna see some announcements regarding this in in this this year's WWDC. Either they're gonna drop it, or they're gonna revamp it to, you know, remove some of the restrictions with sandboxing or the upgrade models and that kind of stuff. Because it's such a shame at the moment. Like, I don't see any point in using it apart from getting updates. Uh, from Apple or getting some of the uh, some of the Apple apps like Pages or Keynote or anything like that. Like games, if you want to get games, like they're going to be more expensive on the Mac App Store than on Steam. Uh, if you want to get apps, most of the ones the the main productivity apps are not there anymore. I don't know if you read that sketch. They, yeah, they abandoned have. the Mac App Store quite recently. Uh, I need to transfer my license, by the way remind me to do it. Pixelmator I'm glad that's still there but most of the the big apps have left. And but Pixelmator is also available for download from the homepage isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the ones I, I purchase on the Mac App Store and I may need to transfer the license at, at some point. I don't know. Um, it was really promising like for developers it would have been a win-win thing like not having to worry you know, a really, really good place to to get visibility, not have to worry about updates. Um, you know, at the moment, if you want to de- um, deliver your, your apps outside the Mac App Store, you need to implement your own updater and host it. Uh, obviously, there are libraries that uh, give you that nearly for free, but you, you always need to host it, and you always have the risk of releasing a dodgy update that breaks the auto-update and things like that. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Pascal? Uh, have you have you had any experience with their Mac apps? Or? Not really, no. I don't really care for uh, native apps, so that means I'm not really in the market for uh, the App Store at all. Um, I prefer my apps to be in the browser if I can. I work on a bunch of different 
platforms. I have an iPad here in front of me and I work on a Mac at work. I do have Linux at home and a bunch of Android devices that I use. So the more I have on the web and I can switch between, the better. And especially with my Linux machine at home, I don't really see the value in uh, kind of getting accustomed to a Mac app. Yeah. I, I remember when I used to take care of the the native TweetDeck for Mac, the, also the review process was so slow. Like where iOS app reviews would take two, three days, Mac apps or uh, reviews would take up to two weeks, even longer. That was really bad. And yeah, there are some horror stories out there of people waiting for months without hearing anything back. Yeah, yeah, that was really bad. Anyway, I really hope Apple hears the feedback. I think there's there's been a lot of feedback lately as well. And I'm sure they're listening and they, they will do something about it because it's a real shame. So that's about the things we don't want to see. So let's move on to things we do want to see in 2016. Right. I think I need to rephrase this because the way I've written it down here sounds very negative, but I want to put <laughs> it into, give it a positive spin. So I want to see better tablet software. So cool. <laughs> uh, but I think I need to say that the current state of tablet software is just absolutely dreadful. And I mean the base operating system and then the apps, but I think one kind of depends on the other. IOS I, and Android? I talk about both of them, yeah. yeah. Um, to an extent even uh, about Microsoft, I've never actually used it, but uh, the idea of having Windows 10 running on a tablet is not particularly appealing to me, but it, um, with those three options, we have very different ends of the spectrum, and I would kind of like to see them converge somewhere in the middle. So Android has actually regressed quite dramatically. If you look back to version three, the Honeycomb area, that was tablet only, they had some interesting customizations just for tablets. The way they they just had the, the home home screen, they arranged the widgets and the the window layout. They were on a pretty good path. And at least the Google apps then were made more tablet friendly. And then over the last year or two, they moved back from this. And for example, Hangouts, if you open this on a tablet now, it, it's just a scaled up phone version. It looks absolutely horrible. You have um, a full screen there just with, um, yeah, images of people that you can tap on. Yeah, you know what the solution for that is, right? Like split screen. Yes, yes, indeed. So um, they are actually working on this. So the Pixel C is now out. And I would actually consider buying this if it ran on a on an operating system that'd be usable. But I do have my Nexus 10 at home and it's still good enough. Um, it's a bit slow. That is mostly because Chrome keeps growing and growing and increases its, increases its resource hunger with every release. So um, even though I don't really serve The Verge or any resource-intensive websites, it's still yeah. getting slower and slower. Talking about The Verge, did you read Walt Mosberg's review of the Pixel T? No. Okay. But so e from what I've seen is most of them kind of agree, great hardware, terrible software. Yeah, those were exactly his points. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think the same is true for, for the iPad to some degree. In many ways, it's also a scaled up iPhone. And I really like the, the argument that I've heard um, for people defending that this home screen, this unified thing that works well enough. If you imagined 
Apple starting from scratch and ignoring the iPhone and designing a yeah. a tablet now. Yeah, Would you imagine that they came up with something like this for the home screen? Definitely not. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, yeah, like yeah, the home screen is not it's not great on the iPad. Everything's very spread out. Apparently it's pretty ridiculous on the iPad Pro because of the size of the yes. of the screen. But um you guys are not going to be able to see it, but I think by having split screen apps, like um, the problem of apps not being optimized for, for the whole of the screen of, the, of your tablet gets mitigated in a way because you can have two kind of phone size apps side by side and at least it doesn't look that bad and it gives you the additional benefits of multitasking. So yeah, I think that's one way where Apple, uh, I'm sure Android is going to so there's it. some there's some code in um, Marshmallow for yeah. multi-window. It's disabled at the moment, but uh, there was an AMA on Reddit with a Pixel C team, and they've acknowledged there that this is definitely happening. And it seems to me like the Pixel C in general was a bit rushed. So yeah. they should have waited for the next release of Android, where all of those new features are in. Yeah, it's interesting that Samsung has been offering this capability for a really long time. Yeah, um, what I should what I should note as well is that I'm really excited about multi-window from a user perspective and utterly terrified from a developer's perspective because I've seen how Samsung handled this and Android applications in general aren't particularly well suited to be yeah. resized and having more configuration changes that life introduced cycle is to be a nightmare. Yeah, imagine at the moment there's this this running joke among among Android developers that uh, you can get any app to crash if you just rotate your phone um, often enough. <laughs> and if you see anyone test an Android app, so, hey, check out my app here, and you give this to a fellow Android, Android developer, usually the first thing you will see is them uh, turning their, yeah. their device around. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it happens every time because it's so difficult to handle and so easy to get wrong. And essentially, the same thing would happen if you introduced a new event for resizing the screen. and. I can only imagine what the first couple months after this would be. Uh, we would definitely see a few more crashes in Crashlytics after after a release like this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about my wish for 2016, uh, which is going to be I want to see the smart the smartwatch market to thrive this year and more. More specifically, I would like to see Apple to to iterate and improve on the Apple Watch uh, much more than they've done so far. Um, I use an Apple Watch every day. I like it. I, I really love that I can see notifications. I don't need to get my phone out of my pocket. I like that I can reply to some notifications at the moment, like using voice and things like that. But at the same time, every day, there are so many other things that I would like. I think I wish I could do this with my with my watch, um, and I've been thinking about it, and it would be so easy. Like the same way, I don't know if you are familiar with how the Apple Watch is structured. Just by making the glances much more powerful, the glances are this row of small widgets you get when you swipe up on the on the Apple Watch. At the moment, the the only ones that are interactive are the widgets where you can set it in airplane mode or do not disturb mode or things like that. And the music player where you can change the volume or go back and forth. 
uh, change songs. But any of the third-party widgets, they didn't do anything. They are just launchers. They can display a few some data, and they are interactive. It would be so so helpful if we could just do things from there. Um, so hopefully Apple is listening to feedback. I'm sure they've already thought of this, and we we will see it together with some more powerful hardware. Yes, I've got a question for you. So I wear my Android Wear watch pretty much every day, but I also use it most of the time as a glorified notification display. It's really handy, especially if you walk around here in London and you don't want to get your phone out of your pocket because you're carrying something or whatever yeah. and just want to check um, what the notification um, was about that just vibrated in your pocket. And I almost never use any apps unless I'm bored in a meeting or something and want to have something to fiddle around with uh, and I can check something out there. But in general, they're pretty useless. So, And I've got the feeling that most people feel the same way about Apple Watches. So now my question is, do you feel like they have rushed this a little? Should have produced the first version of the app, uh, sorry, should have produced the first version of the Apple Watch without the capability of third-party applications and just see how apps are used and then see if this is even necessary to iterate on maybe i don't know you never know like the the, the original iphone was released without an sdk and exactly but i think the genius in that was that they realized that there was demand for doing this people jailbroke their phones and installed it uh, through custom means and then they realized, hey, there's an opportunity here. We can actually monetize that stuff. We can create a market. We can make this easier for people. If they had done the same on the Apple Watch, they probably would have noticed that apps aren't something that people want to use and could have focused on something else, for example, the glances that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, actually, on a second thought, yeah, I think you're right. They they, they rushed it and on the FDK wasn't great like having remote apps running on the watch wasn't great the truth is people don't use them or they're slow and in most cases it's faster just to get the phone out of your pocket and do whatever you need to do i see this with um, overcast i really love that app uh, when i want to change po change podcast or start playing a new one i often try to do it on the watch but it's just faster to get the the phone out of my pocket and do it there. So I don't know. That's my wish for 2016 because I really think that smart watches can can help us more yeah, so than being a glorified notification center. Yeah, same for me. So with Pocket Cast, the only action that I actually use on my smartwatch is uh, skip forward yep. to skip over ads or discussions about uh, Johnny Ives shirts or whatever. <laughs> Okay, Pascal. So I think this is everyone, everything we wanted to cover the um, in this episode. We wish everyone really happy holidays and a happy new year. Yeah, happy new year. We'll take a break for a couple of weeks and we'll be back in 2016. You can find us on on iTunes, SoundCloud, and your favorite podcast apps. And please. Please continue to send us feedback. Yeah. We really love hearing from you. The audio quality should hopefully be better this time, but yeah. we are still trying to improve on this. Yeah. And thanks, everyone, for, for the feedback so far. I think if you have any questions for us that you want us to cover uh, during the episodes, I think our DMs are open. And if they're not, they will be from now on. 
uh, if Pascal agrees, I think we haven't Absolutely. spoken about this. Uh, but yeah, thanks everyone and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Okay then.